I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Friends, today we're joined by Stephanie Pangborn. I think you'll be happy you downloaded this episode. Dr. Pangborn is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Clemson University and a faculty associate for the Institute of Engaged Aging. Her work is guided by a rich appreciation of the artful ways we experience life and relationships. Her scholarship has been published in traditional academic outlets, as well as shared in creative forms, including documentaries, a webcast, and, and public art shows. Stephanie, for many years, I've, I've had a deep respect for your unwavering commitment to fostering inclusive communities, communities that are characterized by intergenerational friendships. Your work to date includes diverse contexts and topics, including Alzheimer's and dementia, end-of-life experiences, grief and bereavement. But a common thread across all of that work is the use of art programming to develop resilience and relational connections among participants. Today, I'd, I'd love to talk about your work with hospice generally, and in particular, the work you've done with remembrance retreats for teens who've lost family members. So thanks for the work that you do, and, and thank you for joining us today, Stephanie. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, this stuff is really important to me um, in my own personal life, and time and again, as I continue down this professional journey, um, I'm just amazed at the power of these resources. Um, so I'm excited to talk to anyone who wants to about the topic. Mm, mm. So let's start with your recent article published in Health Communication. I have to tell you, Stephanie, you had me at hello, right? <laughs> <laughs> the very first sentence, quote, photographs, piano keys, nature walks, fingernails filled with paint. This was my life a childhood of unceasing creativity. I constructed my world with fierce imagination. Stephanie, your words linger with me. Unceasing creativity, mm -hmm. fierce imagination. Mm -hmm. And knowing you, it, it's clear from your work that you consider artful experiences as essential to a well-lived life. Absolutely. Can you talk to us about kind of what artful experiences do, do for you personally, do for individuals and groups? Sure. Um, I guess to start, I have to begin with, with my personal life and how I've known these artful experiences to be absolutely necessary um, as I've learned to foster resilience in my own life, um, as I've moved through, through various stages and experiences that haven't always necessarily been enjoyable in the process, but I can now look at as um, growing moments. I guess long before I understood how art was working on me, 
uh, I developed habits of, of clinging to creativity so that I could understand myself and um, discover what I had to offer the world. Um, and I actually pursued um, art as a major during my undergraduate studies. Um, but it was in that process, actually, my junior year, as I was busy producing things, um, that I came to this important realization that it wasn't the products ever <laughs> at all. It was the process, of, uh, the process of creating something, making something, not just of the materials of my surround, uh, but of myself and learning to embrace the ways my heart and mind were able to move freely with this authenticity that I, I couldn't muster on my own, um, in a lot of, in a lot of situations. Um, so engaging in these artful practices helped me not only know myself, but commit to this process of continual becoming and, and investing myself um, in unique ways that only I could in the world. Um, and so I guess, I guess it was just finding comfort in the fact that when words failed me, these creative resources enabled others to know parts of me um, and understand at some deeper level the experiences that I had when I hadn't yet learned how to articulate them or developed the courage to do so. Um, so artfulness in, in daily life was a way that I, I just felt seen and heard, uh, mm -hmm. which then was, it just inherently led to more meaningful relationships because I was able to be fully me without reservation with the people that I loved and um, who were helping me understand myself and the things that I was going through. Um, so at an individual level, I guess, self-expression and, um, and a commitment to working through the hard stuff of life, um, but mm -hmm. in relationships, offering this opportunity to be recognized um, in a very genuine way um, that art, whether it be um, through painting or photography or, or music or just simply engaging in nature and the aesthetics that make life so rich, um, there was something there that allowed relationships to become more than just the everyday meeting and greeting of people. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'd say if I had to sum it up, even though that wasn't short, <laughs> um, that's, that's what I would say is the, is the power of these artful experiences in mm. our effort to live well in the midst of life that we know is fragile and vulnerable and filled with circumstances that are trying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In listening to you, I'm, I'm struck with how you approach art not as a noun, per se, but as a verb, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. see art as a process, yeah. as this process of becoming and a mm -hmm. process that allows you to cultivate relationships. Am I mm -hmm. hearing you? You are hearing me right on. I feel known right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it doesn't mean that, that the products aren't relevant and they don't inspire beauty and they don't inspire ongoing 
Um, oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. With exclamation points. Uh, products are important in their own right. And I've seen that in some of um, the research that I've been doing with folks in a memory care facility here um, and the art public art shows that we've held. Um, where people are able to, publics are able to see marginalized communities um, in real, raw, life-affirming ways. Like, there is a power in that, too. But in my own personal life, maybe it was just that I never <laughs> looked at a final product and felt moved um, by something I created, but it was, it was the movement of me and my soul as I was developing um, new creative skills and connecting with people through the process of creating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you mentioned this, but let's dig a little deeper. Talk to us a little about some of the work that you've been doing, where you're integrating art programming, music, storytelling into healthcare contexts. Sure. Um, it's It's been a variety. Um, when I first came to Clemson, I... Um, I found this wonderful community called Clemson Downs, which is a continuing care community um, for individuals um, who either need full-time care or assisted living um, or want to live in a community where they can move through um, different levels of care as they need it, even though they might not now. Um, but it was right when I got here that they were talking about starting this memory care or adding um, to their community a memory care facility. And because the people there are wonderful and the leadership understands the value of quality of life, um, they invited me to start what they called a creative studio uh, where students here in our communication department were able to spend semester, some of them even a full academic year, um, meeting with residents who are living in this full-time uh, memory care facility. Um, and they, they engaged in different types of art, um, music, photography, uh, painting, just every single week it was something different and whatever they felt called to do in the moment. But um, they cultivated these beautiful relationships in the process, which were healthy, um, holistically healthy, both for my students and for the residents. Witnessing that, um, I think, launched me into full devotion to this as my niche area of study. Um, but we held public art shows at the end of that academic year to feature all of the work that the residents had done. And that was, um, it was a profound experience, um, seeing how even intimate moments between two individuals who really had no business otherwise being together, watching them develop uh, a friendship that was genuine, and then um, the effects of these creative practices, speaking to our larger community about what Alzheimer's and dementia, um, not what the disease itself is, but um, more bring a focus to the possibilities that are still very real um, in relationships with individuals who have been diagnosed with the illness, um, it, the whole process was just amazing. So that was, I guess, the starting point at Clemson. Um, we also started an intergenerational friendship program. So each time I teach our communication and health course, uh, my students are paired with residents um, from various levels 
of Clemson Downs community to engage for a semester meeting at least once a week um, for an hour. And most of the times um, ends up being two or three hours, but to just engage in relationship mm-hmm. and f- discover the value of intentional commitment to developing this relational practice of hope that I've talked about in, in a lot of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Today, actually, we had our end of the semester friendship celebration, uh, which is always a special time where students and residents um, stand up in front of everyone in the community and talk about how meaningful their relationship is and um, specific things that they've learned from one another. And it's just a it's just a beautiful way um, to wrap up an academic year for sure. But to to see how all of this stuff theoretically that we know actually plays out and makes a difference in, um, in the lives of individuals every single day. Mm-hmm. Especially mm-hmm. one of the things I didn't expect when we started this was, um, I guess, how similar some of the social and emotional struggles um, are between some of the residents at Clemson Downs who've been moved from their homes, their lives have been disrupted in a sense um, from what they've been used to in their lifetime, removed from things that are familiar and people who've been an integral part of their life. And the students here um, between freshmen and seniors who have been uprooted from wherever home is and now find themselves in this um, college community where they often, they refer to it as a bubble. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, and so I see them processing some of very similar socio-emotional um, struggles together in relationship. And it's, um, it's just pretty incredible. In listening to you, I'm reminded of the philosopher John Dewey's argument that art can bridge gulfs that might <laughs> yes. otherwise serve as barriers or divides between yes. people. Mm-hmm. His work, especially... Um, his book, Art, Art as Experience, has been, a, I guess, a linchpin of sorts for me um, in my personal and professional life. But yeah, he describes art as um, communication in its pure and undefiled form, mm-hmm. where we can break down these barriers that seem impermeable, bringing people together in meaningful ways and highlighting our ability to, to truly construct lives worth living in the midst of pain and suffering and loss that are inevitable. Um, Things that threaten to defeat us and instead join together in relationship um, and use these creative narrative resources to to create artfully our life story from that point forward. Not ignoring the hard stuff that we've gone through, but, um, but really focusing on this cultivation of a world that can be inhabitable still and acknowledge the depth of pain and despair that we've moved through. Mm -hmm. And in the process, right, you're helping to cultivate those inclusive communities Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. across the lifespan, age is one of those markers of difference that too often right, can separate people mm-hmm. and and because the spaces in which they inhabit are, exactly. are separated. So mm-hmm. you're, you're fostering these inclusive communities through art programming. Mm-hmm. I'm trying and it is, um, it's not easy work. I would never call it that, but it is 
work that is worthwhile in every way. Um, just, um, I, I guess bringing hu- humanity <laughs> to its finest form mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in these spaces where people, um, don't ignore difference, but acknowledge it as, um, something special to be appreciated. Um, and, and learning to work through those. A lot of my students um, struggle at first with this uncomfortableness because of the way aging or Alzheimer's or hospice have been constructed in their lives for them um, based on either personal experience or just things that they've heard. And then when they're face-to-face with someone, um, fingers and paints are on piano keys, um, and they are simply together in the present moment, acknowledging one another and what they need in that moment, um, we learn how important these inclusive communities are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back and, and pick up a, a thread that you mentioned, but I think it's a thread that's worth kind of following a little bit longer. You sure. talked about this notion of hope. And mm-hmm. in your health communication article, you draw on your artistic sensibilities to to challenge the way hope typically is understood in Western medical contexts, mm. where hope is often metaphorically equated with a cure. Right. 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 And you challenge that as as problematic. Talk to us about that and and your alternative vision of what hope can be. Okay. Uh, I guess hope uh, for a long time in my life, uh, that word (laughs) just brought this connotation of like this fluffy, wonderful feeling um, that allowed people to to be optimistic. Uh, But now having lived through moments and experiences in my own life in which I desperately needed something more than a fluffy, wonderful feeling um, and also witnessing others in my life and those I've met through research um, processes, I, I understand it to be much more concrete, much more uh, um, demanding of ourselves and others um, than this wishful thinking, naive hope that I had formerly understood. Um, I think that the problem with equating hope with a cure especially in the context that I've been working in where um, people are facing end of life or have been diagnosed with illnesses that um, have no cure or that limit their life um, with certainty, right? If there is no hope to cling for then. And uh, if we understand hope instead as uh, work that we do in relationship with one another. Uh, Cheryl Mattingly has uh, a book on this that I, I love, and I share it with many of my students, uh, but she says real hope requires real work. Um, and it necessitates uh, an acknowledgement and affirmation of our lives and our circumstances and a continual commitment from people in relationship to move through uh, sometimes tumultuous terrain, right? To get to a place where they have created something 
um, worth living for in light of what they've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, the, the strength in that version of hope offers us um, profound healing, even when physical or cognitive healing from a medical sense can't be achieved. Right. I can, Mm -hmm. I can hope when my grandfather has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's that, um, for the remainder of his life in me offering myself and in relationship with him and choosing to be present with him, even when it's hard, that the meaningful moments that we have while his disease progresses will enhance the life story, the family legacy, um, that I get to have for the remainder of my life. Right. And in the, in the process, make the end of his life here on earth, uh, more enjoyable, let him feel acknowledged and heard and valued, um, in ways that, um, wouldn't be possible if my version of hope was one that was equated to a fix. folks, Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Stephanie Pangborn, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Clemson University and a faculty associate for the Institute of Engaged Aging. If you'd like to learn more about Stephanie's work, please check out her recent article in Health Communication that's linked on our Facebook page at dmpodcast.woub. You can also meet Stephanie virtually through a webcast at tvclemson.edu. Again, we'll put the link to that webcast on our our Facebook at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. Now back to our conversation. You mentioned your grandfather and if I remember correctly, he was a, a hospice chaplain. Is that that's correct? That's right. Yep, that's right. Okay. And has he inspired some of, of the work that you do? I can honestly tell you that I I can't get through my work without him being a very present part of it. Um, he from a very young age, cultivated within me uh, a very strong awareness of the value of human life and the need to recognize the stories of others and be the person that listens um, and sees, even in the midst of pain, um, Mm -hmm. to work hard to offer yourself um, so that people can continue to have hope and find healing um, beyond, um, maybe the, the tough circumstances that they go through when, um, end of life is near. So yes, by all means, he's been a very vivid part of my everyday life, um, and will be (laughs) forever. Mm -hmm. Um, I, Mm -hmm. I feel, um, I feel his presence a lot when I am working with, um, individuals in, in my various research projects, but also in my personal life. Um, I think it takes 
when you understand uh, this need for artful living, um, I think that we are more open-minded and welcoming of um, diverse ways of knowing the world and one another and ways of working through um, circumstance that is, is challenging. So um, he's been a huge part of it. And he actually, um, he passed away right after my first year in my PhD program. And and so my dissertation uh, project was doing art and music um, programming in a hospice um, organization. And um, it was it was really special to be able to start that phase of my life um, with him physically with me um, and to end it in a way that honored his life, that it inspired me so much. Mm. That's beautiful. His spirit is certainly manifest in your work. Um, you write about him in, in several of your pieces. You also write about the many people who you've encountered in your journey. There were three in particular in a story that you shared in your recent health communication article who have stayed with me and have become companions of sort. Um, the story involves twin 19-year-old boys, Josh and Joey, and their mother, Teresa, who at the time was a, a patient transferred to hospice. For those who haven't read that article or who aren't familiar with, with your work, can you tell us about Josh and Joey and and Teresa? Yep. They were unexpected. And as soon as you mentioned their names, their faces um, come to mind <laughs> vividly uh, because they, they linger with me too. Um, this was uh, probably halfway through um, the ethnographic research processes for my dissertation and I got a call, um, actually the night that Teresa had been transferred to hospice, um, pretty, pretty severe COPD, um, family was present in this hospice home where she had been transferred. Um, she had a, my goodness, it was her sister. There were probably four or five other family members and then Josh and Joey, um, who were, uh, just very, I, the pain in the room was real, palpable, um, because no one had anticipated this point coming so soon. Um, and so it, it seemed emergent or like an emergency at the time when I got the call, like you need to get there as soon as possible. They want um, to do some photographs. And so, uh, we had been doing some photographs of other folks, um, who wanted family portraits and things like that. But this was the first time I was asked to come into a space where, where pain was so very real and present um, and try to capture something um, for these boys to remember her by. Um, they wanted no markers of illness, but they wanted photographs of some of the things that um, they would no longer be able to see every day as they grew up in continued on with their own lives. Um, she had, Teresa had um, tattooed JJ on the inside of her forearm in this really beautiful script. And the boys 
um, I was moved by how much that tattoo meant to them in their life that their mom would choose to inscribe her skin with their initials. Uh, and so we took so many photographs and, and as we did, the boys moved bed sheets to cover up wires and monitors and, and make this as, um, peaceful and, and serene as possible. They wanted, um, they wanted to be able to see this part of their mother forever and cherish it. Um, and, and that experience moving, I, I had multiple conversations with them after that point. Um, and I think it was in some of the conversations where they were thinking through that process in retrospect and learning how to reconstruct meaning in their life, keeping their mom as an integral part, even though she had passed away, um, that I started understanding just how meaningful this work was. Um, they, they each had a framed picture of, of the tattoo that they kept at their own homes. Um, they had started college and they weren't sure they're going to because they had given up a lot in caring for their mom as, as her illness progressed. And, um, so they were pursuing school and moving forward. And, um, they each had gotten a tattoo of their own that was unique to their individual relationship with their mom. And they told me stories of that. Um, it was just, it was beautiful to see how at a at 19 years old, that they were able to draw upon um, something other than words to process their grief. That they had the forethought to say, you know what, this is this is something about my mom that I need to cling to and keep um, as I move forward. And I, I mean, that just the maturity of of these boys was <laughs> amazing. Um, because I honestly, at that age, cannot imagine having lost a parent and having it been my only parent, um, that was present in my life. Um, so they, they linger with me, um, because they remind me of how a seemingly simple moment, you know, 20 minutes of my life where I stood in a room with a camera in my hand, um, could potentially have positive lifetime effects, for them as they reconstructed their story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in that moment, mm -hmm. right, you, you vividly illustrated a living practice of hope that is not based on a cure. Yeah. Because yeah. we know that Teresa passed and, and mm -hmm. did not live. And, and at the end of the day, none of us leave this right. world alive. Right. Right. But still, you were able to construct moments that will serve as lifetime memories mm -hmm. um, for these for these young men who will yes. go on to potentially have children of their own. And mm -hmm. it really illustrates the the importance of the argument that you're making that we need a different metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. That that curative mm -hmm. metaphor is somewhat limited. That yes. there's value in it, but that there are limits to the extent to which that can truly mm -hmm. allow us to be fully present in, in those moments of our lives. I, I think Lynn, as I listening to you talk through this too, um, it reminds me just this idea of narrative foreclosure. And I, I 
actually, this is the first time I've put the two together Mm -hmm. (laughs) or made sense of them together. But I think that that metaphor of hope as a cure leads us to understanding um, that there's that these moments can't be cultivated, that stories end when a diagnosis is made, that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. when someone dies, they no longer have a role to play in your own life. Um, And, and when we, when we shake that metaphor and learn that there's so much more, so many meaningful moments that can be cultivated, if we have the courage to be creative in how we adapt as necessary to whatever the circumstance is and requires of us, um, that actually life can become so much richer because of what we've moved through. Yeah, I I think note to self, um, Mm -hmm. Stephanie, that requires, demands more thinking out loud and writing Mm -hmm. at a different time. The connection Mm -hmm. between narrative foreclosure and understanding hope in a limited way is a cure. That's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's an interesting dynamic there that, that I hope you'll continue to play with. I've noted it. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's interesting. This is why conversations like these are important to have. Right. Think out loud with others. Yes. Oh, what a, what a blessing and privilege it is to, to do this. And hopefully the curiosity is consequential for Mm -hmm. listeners and, and helps them think in new ways and, and ask questions they didn't ask before. I hope so. So you have worked with other teens in different contexts, some Mm -hmm. of which are called remembrance retreats. Mm -hmm. And I want to shift to a different article, but but a related project, one Mm -hmm. that came out in the Journal of Family Calm. Mm -hmm. And in this article, you talk about um, the work that you did as an ethnographer Mm -hmm. and an active participant in remembrance retreats. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with academic terms like ethnography, if you could briefly talk to us about what that is and how mm-hmm. you lived that in the context of, of what a remembrance retreat is. Sure, absolutely. Um, this is a really special memory of, of mine, um, one that I have a difficulty thinking of it as work um, because of just how influential it has been in my own life and relationships. But um, Let's take a step back. Ethnography, the way I have understood it and practiced it in in my own work, um, is a joining together with individuals, um, communities, groups of people to better understand their experiences as they live them. Uh, And so for this um, remembrance retreat, which is um, it's a hospice program. And um, this one in particular was a three-day, two-night family camp experience where families who had lost a loved one who was in hospice care or not um, were able to go process grief with each other as a family unit, but then also with others outside of their family who had gone through similar losses. So for instance, the moms or the women would um, get together and do their own unique activities to discuss the nature of losses at this stage of their life and this particular role um, that they played in the life of the person they lost. My now husband um, was with me as the teen camp counselor. So we worked with five teens for that weekend. 
teens who had very significant sudden losses in their life. Um, four were suicides and um, two, sib- two were sibling suicides and two of the teens were brothers and had lost an uncle to suicide. And then another teen had lost a younger brother to an infant drowning. So um, the intensity of, of the suffering and grief was uh, very strong. But um, Nick, my husband, and I were the counselors for that. And in planning for this uh, retreat, we were given several handouts on the stages of grief and um, conversation topics to have with them and questions to pose periodically throughout the weekend to encourage them to talk about um, what they were going through. And from the very beginning, that just didn't feel right to me, given the sensibilities that I had developed um, in my own studies Mm. of Mm -hmm. health and healing. Um, But we talked to the bereavement coordinator, and she said that they had had a lot of struggles in previous years um, with this teen group, like really figuring out what they needed. Um, And so Nick and I went into it with a pretty open (laughs) mind with... um, a bucket of creative resources. Uh, and we spent the weekend letting the teens do what they needed to do. Um, and it, it ended up being far, far more meaningful than anything that we could have planned ahead of time, but we can get to that in a moment. Um, so the ethnographic work that I did then in essence was joining with these teens and these families throughout the weekend, um, talking to them, making note of things that they said, experiences that we had, um, recording with video and photographs, um, some of these experiences. And then in retrospect, making sense of all of that intertwining theory and trying to understand this unique experience of loss as a teen. Um, and that's what this article is all about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now I'm intrigued, right? Okay. You set aside um, the the guides, the the topics, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the key questions to to pose. You set that aside. What was in your bucket, the toolkit that you <laughs> that you found to be a more meaningful way to meet these teens where they were at? Mm-hmm. Uh, the back of our car was filled with a couple of laundry baskets that I had in my apartment, <laughs> and I had. Uh, We had paints and poster boards and different colored papers. Um, We had some music instruments, but then also a repertoire of music that we had at the time loaded on our computers. Um, Random stuff from our closet, like picture frames and... um, My goodness, what else? We had some twine and beads um, that that the teens ended up making bracelets with acronyms that were meaningful. Um, Just, it was just a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, we brought it in and the first night actually, um, it was really interesting. The first night we got together as just the group of teens and then um, Nick and myself, and it became very obvious that none of them wanted to be there. They were not there on their own will. And, um, (laughs) and through the next couple of days became just real friends with one another because of the experiences that they had shared, not necessarily um, past experiences or the intricacies of their intimate losses, 
but of the the moments they had shared together at camp had brought them to a place where they were willing then to open up like they weren't on the first night. Um, and so I, I wrestle with that a bit in this article, just how the nature of creative practices um, draws out of us um, things that we aren't even ready to share or have articulated yet. But through the process of moving with other people through meaningful moments, we get to a place where we can maybe understand at a different level what we've been through or put words to experiences that just seemed too tough to at first. Um, it was it was pretty incredible. And I had done I had done my own research on hospice and, and suffering and grief, obviously, for my dissertation um, before I even got to this retreat. And um, I was really drawn to um, this new wave of grief theory that Niemeyer proposed um, in a lot of his writings about how, while valuable for us in understanding a generalized view of what grief is and how people process it, whether it be through stages or various emotions attached, all of the traditional grief theories um, didn't enable people to move through in individualized ways. And so um, I really tried to embrace that as I worked with the teens um, and let them dictate where we went and what we did. Um, so things like a, an afternoon of painting or a morning where we went out in the woods and took a, a two-hour walk and some of the kids climbed trees and one of them took a camera and took pictures of things from just really cool vantage points. Um, a couple of them got walking sticks and like went on a little adventure by themselves. And they just had moments that they needed as individuals, but also came together in ways that um, cultivated this, this trust and respect among themselves. Um, and in that process, I... I got to witness this development of a confidence and a voice that they had not shared mm. previously, mm -hmm. which by the end of the retreat, then when uh, we ended up making a, a video of all of these experiences that the teens had, it was their idea to do, um, but to really showcase what they needed at this time of their life, that it was okay to have fun while simultaneously feeling very sad, <laughs> you know, the, the complexity of the things that they were trying to sort through, um, while also protecting family members by not imposing their own needs in the family story. Um, by the end of the weekend, uh, the families just welcomed and embraced these teens in a new way. It wasn't that they hadn't wanted them to be involved at first, but I think they learned to see each other in new ways um, and acknowledge the very unique experience of the loss based on where they were in their lives and the relationship that they had with the person who had passed. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how you can upcycle materials, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. hold space for people to use those materials um, mm -hmm. and bring new life to them. Right. And mm -hmm. allow for their own sense making in the process. And yes. I'm reminded of our, our shared friend, Kenneth Burke, right, mm -hmm. who once noted 
um, in, I think, his book, Permanence and Change, he argued, though the materials of experience are established, we are poetic in our rearrangement of them. Mm-hmm. That the, is highlighted and starred. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. It's like it, it's um, burned in my memory. Mm-hmm. Though the materials of experience are established, we're poetic in our rearrangement of them. And you're living that we, with them. Those materials are there. But through the art-making process, they have an opportunity to make meaning and, mm-hmm. and to engage in sense-making and express themselves and and to do so in ways that defy kind of linear stages of growth and yes. acknowledge the the paradoxes of joy and loss right mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that are a part of our life mm-hmm. i and, think that's one of the beautiful things too like returning to this this need for creative experiences or artful practices in our in our life in order to live well uh, living well is to me I believe an ability to um, to continually become, no matter what life throws at you, um, to to own it and understand that it is one of those things in life that you can't change. But I do have the ability to reconstruct both the materials of my life and the pieces of my story, so that from this page forward, my story is one that I can live well through. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's, I, I do love Burke. <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot to offer, right? Mm-hmm. He, has a, he has a lot to offer us. Mm-hmm. Um, as we wrap up our conversation, Stephanie, I, I shared with you when I invited you to be a part of this project that for me, I am less interested in podcasts as downloadable episodes that that people can consume Mm -hmm. and instead i'm interested in the process of podcasting right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. what that opens up for us in terms Mm -hmm. of the the ways that we think about our lives our relationships and and alternative possibilities that we might not have imagined before Mm -hmm. so all of the people joining us as listeners are a part of that podcasting experience Mm-hmm. So in light of that, what do you hope listeners continue to ponder or, or think about? Mm. I think that um, like fundamentally something Im- important for us all to do, whether we are an individual who's experiencing these, these r- disruptions in life or a researcher studying them or a professional caregiver, a family member, um, that we first and foremost need to understand these experiences as both personal and relational. Mm-hmm. Um, that often it's who are tempted to retreat from the world when it gets disrupted, to disengage from others and even sometimes ourselves uh, as a coping mechanism. And I, I do it in my own life all the time. Um, but it is in the challenge to ourselves in mustering the courage to choose to, instead of retreating, to more deeply engage, um, to experience life in its rich, richness, um, to appreciate the aesthetics that, um, that nature has to offer, to 
experience um, the value of genuine friendship and and relationship with family members um, to instead of retreat to have the courage to stay to dig in your heels and to make something of what otherwise threatens us um, to look at our life as dis- as diminished by what we've gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I hope that what listeners can take from this is just a very real personal challenge to in their daily lives as they experience this or know others who are going through tough stuff um, to, to look for those creative ways to engage with one another um, to not to not impose scripts for what grief looks like or how loss should be experienced or how someone should respond to a diagnosis, but instead like truly try to see and hear what, what the other individual needs and be honest with yourself and what you need to, mm-hmm. uh, and move together through that. I think that there's something very, um, real and powerful in understanding, uh, these experiences as traumatic as they are, as opportunities to construct a life that you can, in retrospect, see that you've grown through this tough stuff um, instead of being beat down by it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you for the, the beautiful life-affirming work that you do, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, yeah. um, I consider it a complete privilege to be able to do it. Mm. And for our listeners, thanks for joining Dr. Stephanie Pangborn and I for this episode of Defining Moments. Decline, loss, and death are inevitable moments of life experienced by us all. But what Stephanie reminds us is that in the midst of this, we're continually becoming and we're becoming with others. We can strive to prioritize people and and not the problem. Divining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast, W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, we will provide links to some of Stephanie's written work, including articles that we've discussed today. Go in peace and, and love one another. <laughs>